0: Hey everybody! What's up Life Church Livonia! You like my uh, Pistons t-shirt here? I wore that for you, Anna Brown. Hope you appreciate it. Well, my name's Alex, I'm on staff here. I'm the lead pastor here at Life Church Livonia. And if we haven't met, I would love to meet you. Please reach out to us via our digital connection card on our digital bulletin, because we want to do some life together. You know what I'm saying over here? I want to wear a t-shirt for you someday. (laughs) Anyway, today is the uh, first week of our new series, The Seven Realities of Experiencing God. I'm really excited for this series. I'm really excited for what I believe God is going to do in this series. This whole series is centered around answering the question how do I know and do the will of God? And how do I know God not just by hearsay, not just through what other people say, but by my own experience? Each of these seven realities help guide us and point us to where God is at work, and how we discern His will, and how we know Him by experience. But before we even get the whole series started, I just want to offer a quick disclaimer. God is a person, not a process. And that means to know and do God's will, we don't need to know a method. We need to know the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, there is no relationship with God without faith. And so these seven realities certainly do not replace the need to have faith as we discern God's will, uh, but they do serve as a sort of compass or direction um, that will help us see ourselves in the map, locate ourselves, and know what to do next to help us take simple, tangible steps in walking with God. So I'm really excited to watch God move in this series, and I'm really excited for each of us to know God by experience to meet him in a face-to-face way that is tangible, that is real. And when we go, man, only God could have done that. So as we get started on those big ideals, I want to start with a little awareness test, shall we? This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? Go! The answer is 13, but did you see the moonwalking bear? It's easy to see something, or easy to miss something you're not looking for. Wasn't that crazy? Honestly, the first time I saw this, I was like, there's no way. This is an editing trick. You lied to me. I went back and looked at that video like four different times, like going back on the little cursor. I was so embarrassed. I got the count right though. I got the number of passes right, but I can't believe I missed a friggin' moonwalking bear. A man in a bear costume (laughs) right in front of my face. And isn't it crazy how things can just be right in front of us like that and we don't even see it. I feel like for me, this bear video is a picture of how we so often live our lives. See, when you look at the world around you right now, what do you see? Do you see the Russian and Ukraine conflict? That's a big deal. you see the deep political division and hatred in America? Do you see racial injustice? Do you see cultural collapse, perhaps? Do you see broken families? Maybe you see an impossible dating market as a single person. What do you see when you look at the world right now? How about your life? How about your circle of influence? What do you see when you look at your life? Do you see fear and anxiety that you can't quite place or explain, but man, you can't stop feeling? Do you see disappointment? Maybe with who you are or where you are? versus who or where you would hope you'd be at this age? You see frustration, maybe? That people can't seem to get their act together do the most basic functions uh, of a relationship well? When you look at yourself right now, what do you see in yourself? Maybe you're feeling stuck. Maybe you're feeling confused over who you are, who you should be. Maybe you're feeling scared and unsure about how to face the incredibly complex and important challenges in our world. I don't know about you, but when I ask myself these questions, I so often just gravitate towards the pessimistic, the broken, the answers that are evidence of sin in the world. However, let's not make the same mistake twice. I know I missed the bear in the video because I was looking at the ball. But just like the bear in the background, God is in each and every one of these situations. Working, positioning, moving to accomplish his will. And today, the big idea that I want you to know is that God is always at work around you. God is always at work around you. Now, this is easier to say than it is to see. And uh, that's not just the case for us. It's also the case for the people in the Bible who experience God do profound and miraculous things in their nations, in their time, and in their lives. And today, I want us to look at two different passages of Scripture. I want us to look at Matthew chapter 1, and I want to zoom in real tight in uh, Matthew chapter 1 and look at the life of a man named Joseph. And in the life of this man named Joseph, I want to help us see how God was always at work in Joseph's life, And then how God is always at work around us. And lastly, I want to close with, so what are we going to do about that? How do we make some tangible moves for that? So let's start with Matthew chapter 1. I want you to take a look at this list of names here. This is a list of over 28 names. And you can see it begins with Abraham, somewhere in the middle there is David, King of Israel, and then this list ends with Jesus. Now, this is the list of names in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, and it's estimated that Abraham was born in 2150 BCE, and it's estimated Jesus was born sometime between 6 BCE and 4 BCE. So, this list of names represents God's movement over 2100 years. And I wanna come back to this list in a few minutes, but for the next 10 minutes or so, I wanna zoom in on this little space right here between, or I'm sorry, this little space between Jacob and Judah. That little space and that gap, is a man named Joseph who had a whole life and without whom this genealogy would stop with Jacob. So we're gonna read in Genesis 37, And I I want to see how God was at work in Joseph's life, and then come back to Matthew chapter 1, and see how he was at work across all these different generations, and then I want to end with us. But let's start with Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 37. It says, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought his father a bad report about them. Now Israel, who is also Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he had made for him an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So we get our introduction to Joseph here in these couple of verses. We find Joseph in this unhealthy, blended family where not all the children, and not even all the wives, are loved equally, and Dad is playing favorites. Many of us know what it's like to grow up in a broken home, where there's dysfunction in the home, and we know the pain of long-standing family conflicts. So we can relate to Joseph. Yet, in this dysfunctional family environment, we get our first glimpse of God moving. God shows up to Joseph in a dream and literally gives Joseph a dream for his life. Now, Joseph doesn't know it yet, but God just revealed to Joseph why Joseph was born and what his whole life will lead up to. But it's too early in the story for that just yet. And one more quick note, at this point in the story, Joseph's life is really good. He's the family favorite. He's having these incredible, powerful spiritual experiences and he does not have to do a whole lot of work. He's living the good life. And it's often easy to see God at work in the good places and feel when we feel blessed when we feel like we're the favorite when life feels biased in our favor, when the people around us and all of our circumstances seem to be conspiring for our good. Things are going well for Joseph on the outside, but it seems from this place of privilege Joseph comes across to me as a little proud. The Bible doesn't say that, but I can just, I get a sense of this pride in him. He's unaware of the consequences his good life and privilege in his family is having on his brothers. He can't wait to rule over them like in the dream. But his dream is definitely not their dream. Joseph's life is changed radically shortly after this, and the good times, they don't last for us and they did not last for Joseph. The Bible goes on to say this. It says, but they saw him. The brothers saw Joseph in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's, Not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. A cistern is basically like, you know, kind of like a a, a water container, often ceramic of some kind. Anyway, it was just kind of like a dry well. The cistern was empty and there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Joseph said, or Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. So Joseph's brothers are so bitter at Joseph. They're so bitter uh, at his privilege in their family. In their hate of him, they sell him into slavery in another country. And they pretend that a wild animal has killed him. They think that this is gonna improve their lives and ease their suffering. And boy, were they wrong. But we'll come back to that. Now, at this point, I'm sure it was really difficult for Joseph to see God at work around him. I mean, how could God have allowed something like this to happen, you know? How could God have allowed these brothers to do something so inhumane, so, so despicable, so sinful to anybody, let alone their brother? The Bible doesn't give us an answer for that. Instead. It tells us this. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from uh, the Ishmaelites who bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave Joseph or gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes. And became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. Instead of showing us why God didn't prevent this suffering, the Bible shows us instead that God is somehow with Joseph in this suffering, and he is giving Joseph success. Ironically, it's in this place of suffering that God teaches Joseph how to manage people, how to manage resources, how to oversee projects and estates, and Joseph doesn't realize it yet, but these skills are going to be a major part of his calling. Over the years, Joseph's circumstances improve, and he moves from simply being a slave to being second-in-command over all of his master's belongings, until... After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. (laughs) And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph is wrongly accused of this crime he didn't commit. He held on to his integrity. He resisted temptation. And despite his good character, he gets thrown out of the frying pan. And he gets thrown into the fire. Yet, God is with Joseph, even in prison. The Bible goes on to say, Joseph's master in prison took him and put him in, oh, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, that's Potiphar, the place the king's prisoners were confined. While Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. Because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. During this time in the prison, Joseph also meets this cupbearer and this baker that get thrown in prison. Both have dreams that trouble them deeply. And we see Joseph move from just having dreams in the beginning of our story to correctly interpreting these dreams for this cupbearer and this baker. We see him begin to exercise this spiritual gift from God. It's easy to overlook this, but but notice this. Joseph didn't do this before he was in prison. Somehow, in some unseen, mysterious way, God has been developing this spiritual gift in Joseph, while Joseph has been a slave. Joseph correctly interprets that the cupbearer will be restored to his position with Pharaoh and that the baker is going to get executed. Both things come to pass. But before the cupbearer leaves, Joseph says this to him. He says, but when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon. However, the cupbearer forgets. He forgets about Joseph for years, until one day... He's with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is having this recurring nightmare, and he's looking for someone to understand what it means, and the cupbearer goes, oh my gosh, there's this guy in prison. His name is Joseph. He interpreted my dream. I bet he could interpret yours too. And so Joseph is called up to Pharaoh, and this is what happens. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that whenever you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Pause for a second, pause for a second with that. Did you see that? Did you just notice Joseph's humility? He didn't take credit for the interpretations. He didn't give himself more power than he really had. Joseph has become this man that sees himself clearly. He knows that this gift belongs to God. This is a different person, I think. I see a different person here than the child who gathered his whole family together to tell them about how he was going to rule over all of them. This is a man who knows both his own limits and God's power. And Joseph does interpret the dream correctly. He tells Pharaoh that there's going to be seven years of, fam- or seven years of abundance ahead followed by seven years of famine and that Pharaoh needs to put someone in charge Uh, of the food storehouses in the years of abundance, so when the famine comes, Egypt will survive. Pharaoh is so overwhelmed by this interpretation and by this plan, he makes Joseph second in command of Egypt and asks him to be in charge of the effort to store food for the famine. After 13 years of suffering, 13 years of unjust slavery and imprisonment, Joseph's life is finally looking like it's going to be redeemed. Seven years go by and they are years of abundance for Egypt and they are years of abundance for Joseph. He gets married, he has two children, he's living this purposeful and blessed life, he's high up in government, all of his uh, old wounds seem to have eased themselves. And then the famine hits. And Joseph was prepared for the famine, but he wasn't prepared for what happens next. It had been 20 years at this point since he had been ripped from being the favorite child and sold into slavery by his brothers. And I doubt that Joseph thought he would ever see his family again. But one day, while Joseph is distributing food for the famine, he sees the faces of Judah and Levi and Simeon and Reuben, the faces of his brothers, standing in line to buy grain from him. The last time Joseph saw these faces, He saw them through his own tears as he screamed and cried for mercy. And it shakes him to his core. Joseph wrestles over the course of months, whether or not he is going to help his brothers, whether or not he's going to enslave them and take revenge on them, whether or not he's going to kidnap one of them, or cut them off. But God moves in Joseph, and God moves in Joseph's brothers. And they become reconciled again, against all odds. And Joseph even gets to see his father again before Jacob dies. And they live together as a family reunited. And it finally all seems to be right. But when their father Jacob dies, the wound gets open again. This is what happens. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph at this point, even though this wound is open again, he is able to see that there is a bigger story going on than just his. And he can perceive that God is up to something. And he says this to his brothers. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And Joseph stayed in Egypt. I'm sure it wasn't all clear in each moment of Joseph's life. But at the end of it all, Joseph could see that despite what his brothers had done to him, despite his hardships, despite his trials, God was somehow mysteriously always there at work in his life to bring about salvation and reconciliation for Joseph's family and for the whole country of Egypt. In his commentary on Genesis, Walter Brueggemann writes this, he writes, The theme of the Joseph narrative concerns God's hidden and decisive power, which works in and through, but also against human forms of power. The theme is that God is working out his purposes through and in spite of Egypt, through and in spite of Joseph. Through and in spite of his brothers, the evil plans of human folks do not defeat God's purpose. Instead, they unwittingly become ways in which God's plan is furthered. Joseph could see that God was at work all around him, but he had no idea... That the God of the universe was working across time and space in all human history. Joseph had no idea that God was up to this. He couldn't even comprehend that there would be a man to come named Alexander the Great who would teach the whole world Greek. And then another empire called the Roman Empire would rise up out of that and build roads to everywhere in the known world. And that 2,000 years after Joseph's life, on the first time, on the only plot of land that borders three continents and an ocean, the nation of Israel, at the first time in human history where everyone could speak the same language and there were roads to everywhere in the world that there would come a man named Jesus who was the son of God who would take away the sins of the world and Joseph had no idea that he was part of this bigger story and that him allowing God to work in his life simply kept this list from stopping at name number three God was at work throughout all of Joseph's life life across all time and space part of this bigger story to reverse the fall of humanity to heal the world from sin to make all things right and whole and to bring heaven to earth and Joseph was a part of that and here's what I want you to see today you are Joseph you are Joseph God is at work around you. He is here in your life. He is working through and in spite of you. Through your family and friends and in spite of them. Through our government and in spite of it. He is working through Russia and through Ukraine and in spite of them. Moving all human history toward the second coming of Christ where finally once and for all every single thing will be made right and good and true and pure where righteousness will finally win the day and sin will Finally, lose where every craving we have for justice will be satisfied, where the good world we somehow know exists, even though we've never seen it, will finally be made a reality in the present. And you have a role to play in that story. God is always at work around you. You are neither in this here nor this when by accident you were born for such a time as this and like joseph god wants you to participate in his kingdom coming and his will being done and so the question is what needs to change to participate in that story for those of us who are already followers of jesus i think this means three things for us and i want you to listen closely to this number one i want you to see yourself as a missionary. If you have a pulse, you have a purpose. What are the chances that you exist? (laughs) And that you exist here, and you exist now. God has a purpose for you. The fact that God is at work, through, and in spite of every circumstance in your life means that you're here on purpose. The people you know, the location you live, the place you work, God is at work in all of those things. Joseph learned to lead in Egypt while he was a slave not while he was the favorite son. Hardship and trial are not an evidence of God's absence. It is often in these places that we are forged and formed into something greater than we were before. The Bible's perspective on Christian living is that no matter what we do for work, all of us are in full-time ministry. Our lives are meant to live out God's kingdom in every sphere we enter. So we are not just someone from Westland or just from Garden City or just from Farmington or Livonia or Redford or Canton or Plymouth. You don't just work at Roush. You don't just work at U of M or Schoolcraft or just work at Big B. You've been placed there by God as a missionary for his kingdom. You're here on purpose. And we need to shift our perspective from not just knowing that, but to living that. Secondly, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this means we surrender our plans. It is normal and natural to ask, what do I want to do with my life? We talk about five-year plans and plans to pay off debt and plans to have kids, plans for this, plans for that, and plans are great. Don't get me wrong. I'm a planner. I love plans. But what the Bible shows us through stories like Joseph's is that um, no matter what our plans are, the plans that matter most is God's plan. So instead of asking, what do I want to do with my life? I want you to ask this question with me God, where are you at work around me and how do I join you? And Life Church Livonia, I need you to listen to me. The reason I want to do this series is God has resurrected our church for something. And we need you praying and asking this question with us to discern, Father, what do you have for us here? You have risen us up from nothingness for a purpose. And we need you to show us what that work is, Lord, that you are doing here. And I need your help to discern what that is. And so I need you to be praying this and asking this. And speaking of prayer, the last thing I need you to do is pray for your frank list and pray for this church. We're hiring a worship leader right now. We're trying to discern in that process. And we need your help to discern in that process. We really do. And we need you to be praying for your franklist because your franklist, you know, it's a fun little tool. We love things that are fun and goofy. We try really hard. We we don't take ourselves too seriously here, but boy, we take Jesus seriously. And the franklist is an acknowledgement that every person in my life is around me on purpose. They've, I've been placed around the people I know by God. And so when we pray for our franklist, we're praying, Lord, show me who you want me to invite. Father, show me who you want me uh, to know. Father, how do I serve these people? Do you want me to have a spiritual conversation with them? How do I invite these people to church that they might know you? So if you're a follower of Jesus, these are your steps. This is what I'm asking you to do in light of the fact that God is always at work around you. And if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, I just want to know. Why not? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? This is the best thing that has ever happened in my whole life. This is the best thing that will ever happen in your whole life. You are standing back from your purpose when you say wait to God. From the life that you've spent your whole life looking for. All of us are looking for a meaningful and fulfilling life. And that life is found in Jesus. John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. But that Jesus has come that you might have life. And life in all its fullness. I mean, Jesus is offering you that today. He wants to take all of your sin. He wants to take all of your brokenness. All that self-hate you have stored up in your heart. All the parts of yourself that you just can't seem to get rid of, but you also can't stand. The ways that you do the wrong thing, even though you hate it. The things you say and do that you know are wrong. He wants to take all of that and give you a forgiveness that has the freedom you are really looking for. A forgiveness that gives you the peace you've been dying for. A forgiveness that gives you the love you've been longing for. So let me ask you, if you, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus here today, what are you waiting for? Like Joseph, let him redeem your story and make it beautiful. Because man, life is hard, with or without Jesus. But it is worth it to follow Jesus. And if that's you right now, I just want to invite you to pray with me. Because God has his arms open to you. So would you pray? Father, I come before you just so in need. I've been looking for a meaningful, purpose-filled, joy-filled, wonderful, beautiful life. And I have tried many things and struck out. Lord, I just know that the brokenness I'm seeing in the world, that's in me too. The greed I see in other people, I have greed. The envy I see in the world around me, I have envy. The hatred that I see in our country, there are people, Lord, I hate. I ask you forgive me. I surrender myself to you and I ask for a life to the full in return. Father, I pray that you'd make me totally new and that you would show me where you are at work around me and how I can join you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you just prayed with me, please reach out to us. Please, we want to walk with you. You are not in this alone. If you just accepted Jesus and surrendered to Him, you are part of the new family of God. And we are here to do life with you because we are real people who have encountered a real and living God and experienced real life together. So please reach out to us via our digital bulletin. And we'll see you next week.